Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Caleb. You know how this works. Yeah. Hi, Caleb. Um, I'm part of the teaching team here, and um, we are in week three of this series, Unashamed, and I'm really grateful to be part of it. And, and just to jump in, Unashamed, freedom in a shameful world. Freedom in a shameful world. I mean, as we get started, I've been thinking this week about a phrase that you may have heard before. You should be ashamed of yourself. Now, just by a show of hands, have you ever heard that phrase? You should be ashamed of yourself. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? All right, all right. General consensus, we've heard that before. Now, here's where you might have heard it. You might have heard it from a parent, right? You might have heard it from a parent when your behavior, your bad behavior, or was, it was just so bad. Now, I'm speaking from personal experience here, all right? Where your behavior was so bad or so embarrassing or so foolish or stupid that it, was a, it, it caused the response to be to say, Caleb, you should be ashamed of yourself. Maybe you did something to your sister. That was so awful that, Caleb, you should be ashamed of yourself. You can tell I'm speaking from experience. Or maybe you heard it from a teacher. When that substitute came, you know, you had a substitute teacher, and you just decided that day you were going to just work that substitute teacher and cause a bunch of problems. And next thing you know, you're swapping names and moving around your seat. You're saying, oh, we don't have to turn that homework. You're, you're lying. You're twisting around. That teacher's that substitute's turned around in circles. You say, oh, we always leave early. Next thing you know, you get a report. That report goes to your teacher. Your real teacher comes back the next day and says, class, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Right? Maybe you've even used that phrase before. And if you have, I'm not beating us over the head with it, although maybe we should think about if it's the best thing to say going forward. Um, but you should be ashamed of yourself. And if you hadn't heard it from, haven't heard it from parents, you haven't heard it from teachers, then Maybe you just heard it from yourself, where there is some way in which you say to yourself, Caleb, you should be ashamed of yourself. Right? Now this word shame, in Webster's Dictionary, so the dictionary that the people that say that all the time, what it says that shame means is this. Shame is a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Now let me put that in language that Caleb knows what in the world it's talking about there, all right? Because I'm a simple mind. It's, it means this, that it's a painful emotion we feel, shame is, that's caused when we become aware of either something we've done that was wrong, a way we have fallen short of expectations, or a public embarrassment. And when you look at that, the definition of shame is a condition of humiliating disgrace. Now, listen, let me just, there's a disclaimer. None of us, when we've said to our kid, you should be ashamed of yourself, we're like, you should live your life in a condition of humiliating disgrace, right? None of us are thinking that. And yet, when a word is so loaded with a heavy burden upon the person that receives it, we do have to ask ourselves, why has our culture all heard that phrase and used that phrase? And I think it's because there's this underlying assumption in the hearts of those of us in our world. And it's this, that the result, the natural result, or the deserved response for bad behavior, poor performance, or public, public embarrassment is shame. That that's what should result from bad behavior, poor performance, or public embarrassment. You should get shame. And so because of that, that assumption is demonstrated in a catchphrase. You should be ashamed of yourself. And over the last couple of weeks, Pastor Tyler has been taking us back into the Scriptures to realize 
This idea that we think we should be ashamed of our bad behavior, poor performance, or public embarrassments, that didn't start in the United States of America. That's a problem all the way from the very beginning. That at the end of God's perfect creation in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are living there, peace with God, peace with one another. And it says they had no shame. They were without shame. And what that means there is that they felt no need to hide from one another or to hide from God. They could feel fully known and fully loved in the presence of God, in the presence of one another. And then in Genesis 3, if you're new to the Bible, the first three chapters of Genesis kind of lay out the whole broken problem that needs to get fixed through the rest of the Bible. And in Genesis 3, those same people in an unashamed world, in a peace of relationship with God and each other, they decide to trust themselves instead of God. They rebel against Him. They sin. And the result of that sin is shame. Shame. And what that looks like is all of a sudden now, because of the brokenness that sin, sin brings and the breakdown of that peace that was there, they now feel that there are aspects of themselves to hide from one another, and they also want to hide from God. Because why? They are ashamed. And for thousands of years since that day, the human being has lived in a world that is marked by shame. It is marked by shame. And yet, as Tyler has walked us through in the last two weeks, central to the message of the good news of Jesus is that Jesus Christ liberates us from the prison of our own shame in that he took our shame on himself in the cross. And as we move into this third week, we're going to think, yes, about how Christ sets us free from our shame, but we're also going to look a little bit at what it looks like for me or for you to play a part in helping one another experience freedom from shame as well. And we're going to do that by looking at two short letters that were written to the same church in the city of Colossae in about 62 AD, all right? By a guy named Paul who's in house arrest in Rome, and he's writing to this church community there. And the first one is the letter of Colossians, which makes a lot of sense when it's written to Colossae, okay? But the Colossians, it's a letter to the church to instruct all the church on two basic things. Here's what Christ has done for you, so here's what you should do for each other. That's the two basic parts of the entire letter of Colossians. But let's look at a couple of verses from it. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says this. Paul says, he's describing the people that belong to Jesus, that are part of the family, and says, this includes you who once were far away from God. Now let me just say, that's us, okay? We're all far away from God. That's how we start and the whole thing about, even as River Run, we say we want to help one another move closer to God. Why? Because we start out far from Him. So he says, you who once were far away from God, you were God's enemies, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yet now, He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in His physical body. That word reconciled what it means is we weren't just separated from God by distance, but we were separated by a barrier. And that barrier was our guilt, our sin, our offense against God. And so when we're reconciled, it means he didn't just say, hey, come over here, Caleb, but he tore down the wall that kept me far from him and pulled me into himself, me. And it says this, as a result, he has brought you into his own presence you're holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. And let me, before we keep moving, 
Let me tell you, the church in Colossae wasn't some holy saint community that's so different than us. And they all were like, oh, they prayed four hours a day and all they ever did was they never sinned. No, they were like you and me. Some of them were brand new to trying to follow this Jesus. And on a regular basis, just like you and me, they did the wrong thing. They fell short of expectations. They publicly embarrassed themselves with some bad behavior. They lost their temper at the grocery store at the stoplight. They snapped at their kids. They had a thought that they dwelled upon or made a word that said something that was really inappropriate. They did wrong things sometimes. And yet Paul says to them, in the presence of God, you are wholly blameless and without a single fault. Well, why? Paul says, well, in chapter 2, here's why. Because when you were dead, chapter 2, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then, at that time, God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. Say forgave. Say forgave. All right, you got it. That's good. That's good. He forgave all our sins. Now we're going to, I want you to have that word stamped in your mind because we're coming back to there in a few minutes. He forgave our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. What that's saying is all the reasons we'd have to be ashamed in the presence of God were heaped onto Jesus in the cross. And when he's nailed on the cross, all those things were there. So for me, that looked like things that had happened to me as a child, being abused and molested, that, that, that created shame. That's nailed on the cross. And it also looked like things I had done with, with sinful practices and, and sinful thoughts and behaviors and immoral things I had done. It's nailed to the cross. And so all the reasons that I would come crawling into the presence of God, ugh, oh, feeling so ashamed, those aren't with me. They're nailed to the cross. And so I stand before Him holy and blameless and without a single fault. And the point that Paul is making is this, which is almost too good to even comprehend, is that in the presence of God, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Now let me tell you, walking in the last couple decades in relationship with the God in whose presence we live, I've realized that that doesn't mean he never says, hey Caleb, nope, let's not do that anymore. All the time I feel God what's called convicting my heart, to say, ah, don't respond. Ah, it's, it's best if you don't respond that way. Nope. Run away from that. No, stop doing that, Caleb. But do you know what I never feel in those moments? I never feel him pointing and shaming me. But when I lean into it, I feel him loving me. That he wants me to experience life the way he desires me to experience it. And so he's drawing me out of the broken stuff into his wholeness. But in the presence of God, we have nothing to be ashamed of. And for some of us, that's a hard thing to even believe. Um, I remember I was about 28, 29, I think. And I had, since I was nine, been living in the Christian community and hiding a ton of shame. And I had memorized Psalm 25. And part of Psalm 25 says, um, says Lord, I, uh, I put my trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. I was so scared of getting put to shame for the stuff that I knew was hidden in me. And there's another part of that in Psalm 25 that says, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth or my rebellious ways, but according to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. And for about 20 years, I was like begging God, God, please don't hold all my stuff against me. 
Please don't all of a sudden pull the curtain back and embarrass me in front of everyone and shame me because I know you might want to do that and you could do that. Please don't, please don't, please instead remember me according to your love. And I was about 28, 29 years old. One day, all of a sudden, I was praying that prayer and God said, please stop asking me for what I've already done. And he just helped me to realize that I didn't need to beg him to do that. He had already answered that in the work of the cross. That Caleb, as I really am, in the presence of God is holy, blameless, beloved, without a single fault. It's too good to be true. But Paul continues to push beyond that in this letter of Colossians. It says, since that is true for each of us that have trusted in Jesus, then what should be true about us together? And he goes on in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. This is 10 and 11, I believe. It says, put on your new nature... And be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. Paul says, hey, the Christian life, it's not just about being forgiven of the past. It's about then spending the rest of your life becoming someone new, becoming like the God who loves you, becoming like the God who's forgiven you. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. That's what kind of uh, ethnic background you have. Whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter what religious background you've got barbaric, uncivilized. It doesn't matter what behavioral background you've got, slave or free, what economic background you come from. None of that matters, Paul says. Christ is all that matters. If he lives in you, that's all that matters. Caleb, or insert your name. And this has a twofold meaning. What it means is that my background where I come from, what I've done, what my reputation is, what religious background I have or don't have, it doesn't matter at all. In Christ, I am Caleb Ives, beloved of God in Christ Jesus. That's who I am. But the second aspect of that meeting, that that passage is this, that so are you. So are you. And as Paul develops this in Colossians and in other letters, what we see is this reality that part of trusting that we aren't defined by, let's call it failures, we could say a lot of shortcomings, whatever, backgrounds. Part of trusting that we aren't defined by our failures is realizing others aren't either. One of the greatest evidences that I am someone who believes that I am not defined by my reputation or behavior, past, whatever it might be, is that I treat others that way. And I don't define them by theirs. Paul keeps pushing into this uncomfortable change of the way of life for the Colossians that they're called to in Christ and says this in verse 13 and 14. It says, since God chose you, to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive. Say forgive. Yeah, remember I said we're coming back to it. Anyone who offends you, remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Speaks here this tender-hearted mercy. Now the Greek word there, you're going to like this one. It means bowels of compassion. Anybody got compassionate bowels today? Just kidding. I don't, know. I don't know what that means, to be honest. I feel like you need to go to the doctor. Um, all right. But bowels of compassion in the Greek language 
was a way of saying, if, I, if you burrow down into the depth, the core of my being, my deep-seated desire in terms of how I relate with others, is I eagerly desire to show mercy to others. I can't wait for the opportunity for you to reveal that you need me to show you mercy because you've fallen short or you've done something wrong or you've had a public embarrassment and I can't wait because at the core of my being there is a fountain of mercy that has been poured into by God and I'm ready to pour it out. Paul says if we've received that mercy, we should fill our hearts ready to pour that out to others. And what does mercy look like when it's dispensed to people that are broken, which is all of us. It looks like forgiveness. Forgiveness. To forgive someone is to be benevolent, to give them what they don't deserve. I always like saying it, forgive. Here's what it really means. It means to give before it is earned. To give it not because you proved to me that you're going to do everything right now. Oh, I found this out about you. Okay, well, you better show me you can do it right. You better show me you've changed. Once you prove it, maybe six months down the road, I'll let you know you're forgiven. And it's not that. It is, hey, guess what? The forgiveness I give you, it comes out of a fountain that comes from God, not your behaviors. And I'm pouring out to you forgiveness. I'm giving before it's earned because he gave it to me before I earned it. And Paul is describing the kind of community where we don't only have no shame in the presence of God, but we don't have to have shame in the presence of each other either. That if we are free from shame in God's presence, others should be free from shame in our presence. Last week, Pastor Tyler said a phrase that if you, didn't, if you weren't here, listen to the whole message. Even for this quote alone, it's worth it. it. But it was so good. But he said, the most damaging voices in our life, the most damaging voices are those that are right about our faults, but wrong about our worth. Those that are right about our failures, but wrong about our worth, our value. I've been thinking about that this week as I've been preparing to, to speak today. And I was thinking, yes, that is so true. The most deep wounds that any of us have received from another person is someone who was kind of right that we've fallen short. We messed up. Maybe we did the wrong thing as a, as a parent or a sibling or in a relationship. Or maybe, maybe we've done something and it's like, man, it came out in public. And they're right. They're right about that. But they're wrong about our worth, and so they have attached our worth to our past failures. And that just cuts our hearts and leaves scars marked by shame. But alongside that is another truth that Paul is describing here. That the most healing voices in our life are those aware of our failures who still believe in our worth. The most healing voices for the, the shame-scarred heart are those who are aware of our failures and still believe in our worth, our value in Christ.
We're free from shame in God's presence. Others should be free from shame in our presence. Now, I told you there's two letters, and we've got just a few minutes. I'm going to give you a little glimpse into the other one that showed up at the same time. That in Colossae, there was a letter to the whole church to instruct them on what Christ has done for them and what they should do as a community for one another. And now they get a case study of that to get put into practice right away. The other letter is a letter called Philemon in the New Testament. It's a one-page letter. And Paul also wrote this one. But it's a very personal, situational letter as Paul is going to be writing to a, a, a leader in the church named Philemon. He seems to be, uh, have a good reputation. He's done a lot of good things. Um, in their culture, he'd be like a household leader. And so all the servants, he seems to have been fair to them. He provides them housing and food, and they work within his, within his household. And Paul is going to be writing to him about a guy that wronged him. A guy named Onesimus who seems to have not met Philemon's expectations and, and sinned and done wrong against him and offended him and been a public embarrassment. And Paul is going to write and say, hey, remember what I just said to you in that first letter you read? Now, let's do it. You see, a community of forgiveness is a really wonderful ide- idyllic community to dream of, isn't it? Oh, yes, let's be that. Until it's time to forgive somebody, Right? Until you've got to actually put it in action, and that's what they're invited to do right here. So Philemon, I'll just read you a few verses from it, and you'll hear the echoes of that letter that they just heard to the whole church in Colossians. 1 verse 7, Paul says about Philemon, the, the, the rich, the church leader, he says, Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness, which is that mercy that's poured out from you has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. You've done it so many times where you've, you've been eager to show mercy and kindness to others. He goes on in verse 10 and says, So now I appeal to you, show that same kindness to Onesimus. And Philemon, you've got to imagine he's a human being. That was like, a, ugh. So the start of this letter was Paul saying, I've done good. Feels nice. And now forgive, do that same thing for Onesimus. And that very name would carry with it. No, this guy deserves to be shamed in our culture. If I want to, I could throw him in prison. I could have him beaten to death because he broke the law. He violated the law. He sinned against me. He publicly embarrassed me. He's done everything wrong, and all the church knows about it. The whole city probably knows about it. And Paul says, remember what I just wrote to you? Do that for Onesimus. Verse 11 and 12, he says this. Paul says, yes, I know what he's done before. I know he hasn't been of much use to you in the past. He's not met your expectations, but now he is useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you. And listen to Paul. My very heart is with him. I love this man that I know has failed. He didn't hide it from me. I'm sending him back to you because he told me what he'd done. So here he is. It goes on in verse 16, and he says, This guy Onesimus, he's no longer like a slave to you. He's not who he used to be. He's more than a slave. He's a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, Philemon, both as a man and a brother in the Lord. And then here's the big challenge at the end, Paul says. So if you consider me, Paul, your partner, then welcome him, Onesimus, as you would welcome me. Let me tell you how much Paul had done wrong to Philemon. Exactly zero. In fact, 
Paul was the one that Philemon probably heard the gospel from. The reason Philemon knows Jesus is Paul preached it to him. Paul is the ideal, most valuable person that Philemon probably knows. And Paul says, hey, that guy who has had bad behaviors, he's fallen short of expectations, he's committed public embarrassment, I want you to treat him like he's me. Forgive him. Forgive him. And we know from reading this letter and then looking forward in the storyline that he does. That instead of doing what the culture would do and shaming him for doing wrong and treating him according to what his behavior deserved, he treated him according to what Christ's work deserved. And he forgives him. And Onesimus is welcomed back into that church family as a welcome, valued, new person. He's not shamed. He doesn't have to earn his way back in. He's welcomed in. And what we see through this is that Onesimus' experience of real freedom from shame is really the result of a few things. One is Christ's work for him. Without the work of Christ, he was never going to be free from shame. But now there's also some community parts to that. That he confessed his own brokenness and didn't hide it from Paul. And now he comes back and he admits to his own past failures in front of the whole church. Can you imagine doing that? He's willing to confess, I'm a person in need of mercy. I failed. I've fallen short. But in order for him to experience a life free from shame, the third part is that there had to be some people who could get to know something about him and show him mercy and not, instead of shame. People who could become aware of his failure and still believe in his value, his worth. And that's what he found. And this is a practice of the earliest church that for 2,000 years we as Christians have been doing in order to have an unashamed kind of community, not just individuals. And it's this practice of confession and forgiveness. That confession and forgiveness create an unashamed community. Now temporarily, for the day, the best way for you to avoid being ashamed is to not tell any, anyone what you're ashamed of. Temporarily, that is true. But that is a lie in that it traps us. Because also the best way to spend your entire life carrying around shame is to not tell anyone what we're ashamed of. Right? So it's this vicious circle that will imprison us to spend our entire life constantly lingering this, this, this feeling that, yeah, they love me, but if they knew... And this practice of confession is a way we can all participate as a community in being free from shame. Because confession, it makes us uncomfortable with continuing in that bad behavior or wrong thinking or whatever it is. But it also provides us with the greatest comfort. Because shame really grows well in the secret place. But when I'll bring it out into the light, and when I bring it into the light, I meet someone who can show to me the mercy that God has. 
Shame gets cut down to the root. I've been thinking this week about these two words that you may hear in our culture. One is being exposed. The other is feeling seen. Being exposed and feeling seen. Now, both of those words communicate the same basic function. That there's something about me that was hidden before that now someone else is aware of. But the difference between being exposed and feeling shame, we've seen that in the news, right? Where someone gets exposed for their hidden stuff. The difference between being exposed and shamed or being seen and loved is how the other person responds to becoming aware of our own failure. So my challenge for us is that we would reflect God to one another. In our small groups, in relationships, across the table at coffee, amongst our families, that maybe we could try, instead of hiding, in order to preserve a reputation that's built on the fragile ground of being fake. Maybe instead we discover this ancient pathway to live in a life without shame. This pathway of confession and forgiveness, of being to one another, both authentic and merciful. There's a passage, or there's a quote that I love that I've shared here probably 10 times over the years. It's from Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and pastors and And here's what he says. He says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. Um, I just felt such a burden in my heart today that God really desires a couple things for us. And one is that he doesn't want us to carry this stuff around anymore. And I know, like in a room like this, in a group like this, some of us, we feel like our entire life is hinging on the fact that we've got things we can, we can still keep under the wraps, keep hidden away. But I just feel, I felt this morning just God's heart saying, come on. Just trust me with it. Trust me with it. I don't want to be a part of a church where we are loved but not known. I just don't want that. Because it's superficial, right? What I want us to be as a church and what the leadership here envisions and what I know many of you desire and why we're here is we want to be part of a community gathered around the person of Jesus who says, hey, what he's done for us, let's do for each other. We want to be a community where we're real, where we are both known and loved. But in order for that to happen, we need to ask God, God, would you work deep into me your heart of mercy? That if I hear a rumor about somebody or someone sits before me and admits a failure or someone sins against me, 
what's deep down within me pours out. And let it be mercy. Let it be a voice in my brother and my sister's life that says, hey, I'm aware of your failures, and guess what? I agree with God. I still believe in your worth. Because if we can cultivate that kind of heart, we can be a really free kind of community. So let's pray. Then we're going to sing the song about the way that Jesus liberates each one of our hearts. It's through his work, through his love, through his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, um, you are a God of great mercy and of great power. And I'm so glad that not only were you kind enough to want us to be free from shame, from shame, but you're strong enough to set us free from shame. And Lord, you have welcomed us into a free kind of life, unashamed before you. And God, I pray that as a church here at River Run, that we would not only be people who are unashamed in your presence, but we would be a community where we don't have to be ashamed in one another's presence. Lord, would you work the gospel deep down into our hearts that we would pour out to one another the same love we have received. And would you give us the courage, those of us who are hiding things out of fear of shame, would you give us the courage to bring it into light to one other person in the community that that shame wouldn't continue to eat us up inside, but we would experience the liberating life, the liberating life of being honest being known and being loved. In Jesus' name, amen.